All right, if you would, join me in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. We continue our Life, Light, and Love series, and so today we'll begin in John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. This is how we know What love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gives us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray as we devote ourselves to your word today, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see what you're saying to us. Help us to see the truth of your word. And most importantly, Lord, help us to apply it, to practice it. Starting today, starting in this very room perhaps, Lord, help us to begin to apply the teachings of our Savior Jesus and his apostles. I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we'd have understanding, that we'd live in obedience, and that we'd live for your namesake and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a famous creed known as the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest confessions or creeds of the Christian faith. I'm just going to read it for you here as we begin today. Just listen to its words. You can Google it and find it in a number of different places, including uh, the Book of Common Prayer. But I just want to read it uh, for us today. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And he shall return to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. It's one of the earliest creeds of 
uh, the Christian faith, and uh, it has uh, been basically uh, orthodox Christian belief for thousands of years, uh, where, hey, really, if you begin to deny too much of this, you're falling into danger of denying uh, what Christians believe and what Christianity is all about, some of the core tenets of our faith and our belief. John is going to add to, this, to these basic beliefs a basic behavior, a Christian virtue that uh, really defines how Christians ought to act. It says in chapter 3, verse 23, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, so far so good, and to love one another as he commanded us. These go hand in hand. If you're a Christian, you're going to affirm both of these. We're going to talk about uh, this aspect of love, but his main point today is very simple. We should love one another. We should love each other. That should be what is a characteristic of this body of Christ. That should be a defining trait of any person who claims to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Notice that phrase, one another, or each other, depending on your translation, the Greek word alelon, alelon, and it means reciprocal or mutual. Therefore, we should be marked as a people by mutual love, by our reciprocal behaviors of kindness and humble service of each other, constantly putting the other before ourselves and seeking the best interest of others consistently. Notice how John begins in 1 John 3.11. It says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. So just as they heard from the beginning that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus is Lord, they also heard that a necessary ethic or virtue for God's people is mutual love, loving one another. Mutual love, therefore, is a foundational teaching of Christianity, and to deny mutual love and behavior is much the same as denying a core doctrine of the Christian faith or confession. So today we're going to look at five lessons on love, five lessons on love. Lesson number one, when we aren't loving, we are representing the evil one. When we aren't loving, we are representing the evil one. Notice verse 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John uses Cain as an analogy. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. So he stands as an example of the opposite. He's encouraging us to love each other, to love one another. He's encouraging mutual love and affection. But Cain stands as an example of the opposite. Rather than being known for his love, his actions proved he was the opposite of loving because rather than acting on his brother's behalf, he worked to kill and to murder his brother. In doing so, John says he belonged to the evil one. He belonged to the evil one. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible and the New English Translation both say he was of the evil one. 
Uh, the New Revised Standard Version says he's from the evil one. Uh, the message paraphrase says that he joined the evil one. The point is that Cain's actions served the cause of the evil one, which meant that Cain, in his action, in what he was doing, represented the devil. Of course, murder is an obvious example of hatred. But anytime someone acts in such a way as to harm another person, they are joining with the devil because that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to harm you. He wants to harm human beings. He uh, exists. His goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. And when you are motivated to do the same, when you are motivated to bring destruction into someone else's life, then you are going against a cardinal virtue of Christianity and you are representing the evil one, regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you confess. You say, well, Brother Jared, they deserve it. After all, they, and then you fill in the blank, right? Uh, we all have our reasons, we all have our justifications why we might not necessarily be so loving or so kind to someone, uh, but uh, that's the work of the devil. The devil helps us to reason in this way where we come up with good reason to be hateful or vengeful uh, or work towards someone else's harm. But either way, you are being motivated by the devil in that moment, which brings us to lesson number two. We should expect hatred from the world when we boldly pursue righteousness. We should expect hatred from the world when we boldly pursue righteousness. Notice how John says this, verse 12. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? In other words, what is his motivation? What was his motivation for murdering him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. You should expect if you're pursuing righteousness, you should expect the world to hate you. Those who pursue holiness, those who want to live holy lives that bring honor and glory to God, they should just expect that they're going to be living lives in contrast to the world. So we've talked many times about the course of this world, that there's a current flowing through a way of living that flows through the world. You're going to be standing in opposition to that if you follow Jesus. Our allegiance to King Jesus is not only revealed in our beliefs and confessions, but in our actions. For each and every day, we are seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. We know what patriotism is, which means that we should have a love for our country. And I believe that we should love America. I believe we should seek its best interests and its welfare. We should take action on its behalf. I also believe there's such a thing as kingdom patriotism, which demands our utmost loyalty to King Jesus and to his kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. But the kingdom of darkness also has its patriots, Patriots of the kingdom of darkness are loyal to the kingdom of darkness and will inevitably hate those representing the kingdom of light. You can expect it. You should not be surprised by it. And yet we are to seek first the kingdom of God, which entails seeking first His righteousness. We love to throw out this verse for evangelistic and missional purposes. That, hey, we should seek first the kingdom of God. We should bring more and more people to know Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. And we certainly should. 
But a lot of times the way that we say that verse is kind of like, we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Right? It's kind of like we, we just kind of tail off at the end, like the last part doesn't matter. No, you should seek first His righteousness. In the way that you live your life, you should reflect the virtue of the kingdom of God. And when you act in this way, the world will act against you and the world will hate you. Expect it, John says. Expect it. Remember, Jesus washed the feet of those who were about to abandon him and betray him. He knew they were about to abandon him and betray him. He washed their feet anyway. Jesus died for the sins of the world while we were still in our sins. While people were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Hatred, human hatred brought Jesus to the cross, and yet that's right where he wanted to be because he wanted to die for the sins of the world so that we might have everlasting life. That was his will. He desired that none should perish. And remember the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son, the Bible says that the father ran to the son. I just want you to think about something. Uh, when he ran to the son, the son hadn't even said anything yet. Now, I personally believe that the son kind of did the math, and he's like, you know, I'm eating with the pigs. My father's servants. Uh, they eat better than this. And so it's kind of a logical decision to say, I think I'll go home because they eat better than this. I mean, this is really bad. We're really at the end of the rope here. I need to go home so at least I could perhaps be a, a servant of the father, of my father. And yet the Bible says while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, the father ran to him. And the father embraced him. The father loved him even before he got around to the part of explaining what he was there for. This is who God is. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He died for the very ones who were mocking him. This is part of the Christian faith is that we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We'll talk more about this later. But we should never be surprised, brothers and sisters, when the world hates Christians. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We should just merely expect that that's what's going to happen, which brings us to lesson number three. Love is the single greatest behavioral evidence of knowing Jesus Christ. Love is the single greatest behavioral evidence of knowing Jesus Christ. Notice verse 14. Do not be surprised. Excuse me, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. In other words, you cannot have a consistent default pattern of hateful behavior and that kind of mindset and still say that you belong to Jesus. Those two don't work together. They don't go together. If someone stood before us today and said, Jesus is not the Christ, He's not Lord. He didn't come in the flesh. If we said some of the other things that John is uh, going after here in this letter, everybody would automatically say, oh man, that's wrong. That's not Christianity. You can't say that Jesus is not Lord, that he didn't come in the flesh and still be Orthodox Christian. You just can't do that. You can't claim that belief uh, that, or deny that belief and still be a faithful believer. But what about love? 
What about love? What about walking in churches all across America and seeing people not being loving towards one another as a consistent mode of behavior? You see, a lot of churches uh, in this area, they confess very similar things to what we confess as their core doctrines. We may uh, do baptism and some other things a little differently, but they'd say Jesus is Lord. They'd say Jesus came in the flesh. They'd say that he's the only way to the Father. And when we get to heaven, we're going to look around and say, not just Baptist here. There's other folks here. What's going on? Why? Because they believe Jesus rose from the dead, that he's King of kings, he's Lord of lords. They make that good confession. But I think there's going to be a lot of folks we look around and where's such and so? Because you see, they confessed the belief but denied Christ in their behavior. Let me read it again. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. So if your doctrinal knowledge of Christ does not translate into loving practice towards others where you are in action loving your neighbor as a default way of living, you're consistent and that's your consistent pattern of behavior, then you really probably don't know Christ. Listen to someone who got part of a good confession wrong, Maximus the confessor of all things. Uh, he was wrong on the two natures of Christ, the two wills of Christ. He said Christ had one will, and over church history that was uh, deemed to be false. And just before I gave you that answer, I want you to ask yourself if you knew whether or not Christ had one or two wills. But listen to something that he said, which I think is, um, is accurate. He says, knowledge without praxis, that is practice, knowledge without praxis is the theology of demons. Just as the thought of fire does not warm the body, so faith without love does not actualize the light of spiritual knowledge in the soul. Listen to that last part. Just as the thought of fire does not warm the body, so faith without love does not actualize the light of spiritual knowledge in the soul. So loving one another is proof that we've passed from death to life because we act on each other's behalf. Those who have eternal life have the love of Christ in them. Listen to something Jesus himself said. Love for God is the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if you don't understand, if you haven't grasped what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, then you really don't get the Old Testament law, the Old Testament at all. No matter how much doctrinal or theological knowledge you may attain, it's translated, it ought to be translated into loving practice. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Turn over with me, if you would, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. says this, a new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. A few things about this passage. First, he says, a new command I give you. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. Can't be accurate. That can't be true, Jesus. And anytime you have that gut reaction, you know that you're, in fact, the one who's confused. But anyway, uh, we might think that. We say, well, we've heard about this for thousands of years that we ought to love one another. After all, it's uh, stated in Leviticus 19 that we ought to love our neighbor. So, what do you mean a new command? A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's the new part. In other words, whatever ideas people had throughout the ages of what love actually is, Jesus defines it for us in his person, in his being, in how he lived his life. He is the perfect revelation of God to see what God is like and ultimately to see what love actually looks like in human form. Of course, What they knew up to that point was his compassion that he showed on any number of people as he went from village to village. He showed compassion. He showed kindness. He showed love. He was empathetic. And he didn't just have those strong intentions and feelings. He fleshed it out by actually healing people and performing miracles and showing uh, love and understanding to those who were outcast in society. And as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Uh, Ultimately, Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. And this is what brings us to lesson number four. True love is revealed in Jesus. True love is revealed in Jesus. So that great theologian Forrest Gump once famously said, he said, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Everybody thinks they know what love is. we got our own ideas, our own concepts of what love is. We feel a lot of confidence that, hey, I know what love is. But there's something else he said that uh, we ought to contemplate, and that is stupid is as stupid does. Point being, whatever my IQ level is, whatever uh, I, may appear, I may appear slow, you may perceive me as being slow, but stupid is... A stupid, in other words, judge me by my actions and my behaviors, not by my IQ level or my slowness or how you may perceive me. I'd like to say love is as love does. Love is as love does. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that. I think that's just a paraphrased translation of exactly what John is saying. Look back at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love is as love does. You can judge your, level, uh, your commitment to loving others by how you act towards them. This is true, authentic, genuine love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And I believe that 
uh, it's more caught than taught. And what I mean by that is all through uh, the Old Testament, the Bible says God was speaking to us through the prophets and, and their writings and so forth. But now in the New Testament, God has spoken to us by His Son. Those written words about love and the compassion of God and so forth became flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we want to know what love looks like on the ground, on a human level, we look no further than Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, we learn certain characteristics about love. First, love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. It is self-giving. We live for the good of others. We lay down our lives for the well-being of others. We're willing to suffer on some level and make sacrifices on some level to help others. Any spouse or any parent in this room knows that that love will be demonstrated in your life. You will have a love for your spouse, for your children, and at certain points along the way, it will demand a certain level of sacrifice. God's kind of love is sacrificial at its core. God's kind of love also acts on behalf of others. Love is selfless. It takes initiative to serve others. So uh, in the beginning, God created everything whole and beautiful with rhythm and peace and so forth. But we sinned and we turned away from God and we see the darkness and the brokenness that entered into the human experience. And ever since then, humans have been dealing with the brokenness out there in our own relationships and in our own hearts. And God said, well, I commanded you not to do that. I gave you certain commands and said, hey, here's what you need to do to live in this garden and live in paradise forever. And know that you're loved by me. Know that you're loved by one another. We turned away from that. And God could have just said, well, you messed up. Good luck. But instead, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God took initiative. He took action on our behalf in order that we might have everlasting life. And he did that, as we've already said, to those even who hated him. The sun rises on the just and the unjust alike, the Bible says. But also, love is true. Number three, love is true. Love is sacrificial. Love acts on behalf of others. And love is true. Notice Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This means that our love is sincere. Not actions taken for our own personal gain or selfish ambition, but truly because we want to help other people. So any of us can uh, serve and love in such a way that it draws attention to self, and that becomes our goal, rather than Actually loving the person because you're just wanting to love the person. You're just interested in their well-being. And I think all of us probably have a mixture of emotions and intentions on that part. But at the end of the day, we ought to be driven by our love for the person. Love is true. It acts in truth, not in a deceptive way, not in a self-serving way. Doris Day once said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Think about that. I only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Finally, lesson number five. Lesson number five, convince your heart to love, Je- love as Jesus loves by loving as Jesus loves. Now, I've got to say, as, as I was going through this, uh, verse 19 and 20 became the most confusing verses for me just right off the bat. W- what is he talking about here? 
He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Understand that, but verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, what does that mean? Um, it was interesting as I began to study it that there are different translations. If you go you look at different translations, a lot of different ideas, and it became apparent to me that the translators were also confused, and so that made me feel a little bit better, right? Um, but I found one that captures what I believe is going on here, and that's the New English translation. Available for free online, by the way, the New English translation. And it says it this way. And by this, we will know that we are of the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence that if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. In other words, sometimes you're going to act in this way where you're loving other people. And I don't really like the word conscience, but the word heart. That's literally what it is, cardia, the word heart. Uh, and sometimes just in your heart, you're going to, is this the right thing to do? This feels like, this feels like maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. This almost feels wrong in my own heart. And what it's basically saying here is sometimes your heart is going to be misaligned and push you in the wrong direction and will even condemn you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't love that enemy. That's not how this world, don't you understand, Jared? That's not how this world works. You don't love enemies in this tangible way. Our heart condemns us. He says, believe in God. Trust, persuade your heart. Notice, convince your conscience, convince your heart. In other words, sometimes our heart's going to move us. In fact, I think many times our heart does. It's naturally misaligned to be self-serving and to not go to that full extent of loving of the other person. And it doesn't feel like that's the right thing to do. Our heart pulls us away from this command. It says, no, convince your heart. Your heart may condemn you. Your heart's not going to like it. Your, your fleshly nature is not going to like this. Understand that when someone is reviling you, when someone is persecuting you, the most unnatural thing in the world is to pray for that person, to be kind to that person. If you don't believe me, let's, let me just take you to an athletic event somewhere. And you get one side of the crowd going against the other side of the crowd, and they just start bantering back and forth, and it's just the most natural thing in the world. It's in us. Our heart pushes against this. But he says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our, heart, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, I want to draw out one more thing, and then we'll close. In the New English translation, it starts with this phrase, and it does the same kind of thing in the New International Version. This is how we know that we belong to truth. In New English translation, it says, and by this, we will know that we are of the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. And by what? And by what? By doing exactly what he's been saying, which is loving your neighbor. By loving in action and not just a speech. 
So in other words, if you want to convince your heart to love as Jesus loves, don't wait for that moment where you're going to feel like doing it. May not ever come. Don't wait for it. Here's another great theological confession. Just do it, right? Just do it. Why? Because God's words, don't wait for your heart to get in line with God's word before you act in obedience with God's word. Just obey simple obedience. And guess what? As you love as Jesus loved, your heart's going to catch up. Your heart's going to follow you. That's what he's saying. We close with this. Verse 23, some of us have steam coming out of our ears trying to understand, and, and I'm right there with you, okay? I've got steam coming out trying to explain it. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. So here's God's command. Just as important as you confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life is also adopting the way of Christianity. The way of Christianity. Show me faith without works and I'll show you a useless, dead faith. It's just a, merely a different way of saying the exact same thing. Faith moves us. Saving faith moves us to love others. It is a core virtue. Of Christianity. Now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes because what we've found today as we've looked at the Word, what we've found today as we've looked at the Word is something to judge ourselves by. To say, am I loving of other people? Am I loving of people in action in how I treat them? A lot of us, we, we may feel some conviction in our hearts right now that, hey, there, there's some things that we need to go make right. But really looking for that pattern of behavior. What, what is your default mode, your pattern of behavior in your life? I'm not asking if you've made a mistake. I'm not asking if you messed up here or there. I'm, I'm asking what is your default mode of behavior in your life? Gracious Father, I pray today that you would reveal to us the true love that passes understanding that comes from Jesus the one who, who dwells in unapproachable light, who's brilliant, who's glorious, who's majestic, precisely because, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, God is love. Lord, help us not to fall short of that glory, but to demonstrate it in the life of this church, but in our daily lives, in the way we act in our homes, in our marriages, and our parenting is how we treat others and to know that we're reflecting the heart of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to come confess Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life, if you want to follow through with believers' baptism, if you want to uh, become a member of this church, uh, had someone walk the aisle in the early service, uh, one of our uh, preteens, I believe, and uh, professed Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life. It might be you today. Or you might just need to come kneel at the altar and say, God, teach me how to love. Uh, whatever the case is, I pray that right now you'll respond in obedience as we sing.